Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Renee Garris, and I'm delighted to have as our guest, Professor Julie Pfeiffer. She is a professor of English at Hollins University and published Transforming Girls, the work of 19th century adolescents with the University of Mississippi Press in 2021. Julie, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Renee. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So why don't you start by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, so I grew up in Connecticut as the eldest of three girls in um, what was very much a family of women. I was given girls books to read. Sort of some of my earliest memories are the books that my mother and my grandmother and my aunt gave me books that they had loved as children. And so I I always had this um, experience of um, loving to read, uh, loving, you know, losing myself in imagined worlds. And I certainly didn't only read girls' books. I read everything I could get my hands on. Um, I think the other thing that uh, had a real influence on my career was my father was a scientist. And so twice in my childhood, we went and lived in other places. I lived in Paris for a year and in Germany for a year. And that um, really developed my love of languages and my interest in the ways that culture shapes literature, um, shapes identities. So when I went to college, I um, I was, you know, I went to Carleton College in Minnesota, which was a wonderful place for me, and majored in, I had this interdisciplinary major in philosophy and comparative literature. Um, and I really, um, I loved making connections. I realized that that was the thing I really cared about. Um, I also loved college and thought, well, what do I need to do so that I never have to really graduate? And Um, decided I would go to graduate school and that I hope to be a professor. So I went to graduate school at the University of Connecticut and got a PhD in English literature. 
Um, and then uh, at, at UConn, um, started taking classes in children's literature. It wasn't something when I initially decided to go to graduate school, I wasn't necessarily thinking I was going to specialize in children's literature. But the University of Connecticut had this wonderful program, lots of faculty who are working in this area, and the journal Children's Literature, which um, I ended up working on as a graduate student and now have edited for almost 20 years. Um, so I, I wrote a dissertation on Milton and Charlotte Bronte. I still you know, had children's literature a little bit on a back burner, something I really liked, but I didn't see it as the focus. And then I got hired at Hollins University, where I, um, I still teach, and started teaching children's literature. And as I taught it, I, um, I got really interested in, um, in, the, in girls' books in particular and started thinking more about my, my own experience as a reader of girls' books and, and now as a teacher of girls' books. Um, so I've been at Hollands for 25 years now. I'm chair of the Department of English and Creative Writing. Um, and yeah, I've had a, a really wonderful career there. And I'm grateful to be at a place that supports my writing and my teaching and, um, and my commitment to the liberal arts. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned connections, and I think connections is something that is really evident in this, in this book. Um, how did you come specifically to write this book? What was the impetus for, for the subject? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so it, in its original version, this was a book that I was going to call something like why we love gender. So the question that was kind of haunting me is, as I was trained as a feminist scholar and then was teaching students using feminist theory and gender theory, I kept trying to figure out why it was that I still loved these girls' books that I'd read as a child, even though in a way I felt like I ought to know better. Um, so that was the original project, was, was some sort of book called Why We Love Gender, what it was that gender you know, seeing the, the gender patterns that are maybe familiar from our childhood, why that might feel satisfying and comforting. Um, before I had really fleshed out what that book was going to look like, I got uh, a Fulbright Senior Scholar Grant to go work at um, the Institute for Children's Literature Research in Frankfurt, Germany. And so I took my three kids and went to Frankfurt, and there I was um, was really mentored by um, by colleagues who said, "Gosh, you know, we know you know a lot about American girls' books, but we think you also need to read German girls' books." So I started reading nineteenth-century German girls' books that I had never heard of. For, for the most part, they were completely unfamiliar to me even though these were books that were tremendously popular in Germany, they, you know, books that had the same status in Germany that a book like Little Women has in the U.S. So, you know, after um, spending this time in Germany and reading these books, I got really curious about the ways that American and German girls' books were alike and not alike, 
um, and decided that that was really the thing I wanted to focus on in this book. And so gender remains part of this project, absolutely. Um, but it's it's now uh, in the context of uh, thinking about this cross-cultural exchange between the U.S. and Germany around adolescence in the 19th century. Well, as our readers will learn through your introduction, you have a very detailed uh, background sort of as you as you came to this project. And many of the books that you mentioned from the English side certainly remind me of summers spent um, reading. <laughs> and I like what you said. Some of the books that we probably shouldn't like, but we still do, like as, as gender scholars, why? So I found that really important. Um, and for our listeners, the, the introduction to this book is fantastic and it's quite detailed. Um, and one of the questions that I have for Professor Pfeiffer is that she, she discusses gender binaries and gender fluidity. And there's a paradox in that, in this uh, telling of setting up the stories of the buckfish. Um, so if you would like to introduce our readers to that concept. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the buckfish is the German word for an adolescent girl. And um, what I learned in Germany was that there was this whole genre of girls' books that were focused around adolescent girls. And this was surprising to me because I had been taught um, and had assumed with other critics that 19th century American girls' books were either orphan girl stories or family stories. So they're either books like Little Women that are centered around a whole family and multiple protagonists, or they were um, they were books like Anne of Green Gables or A Little Princess that focus on an orphan girl who is kind of without resources in the world and has to make a home for herself. So instead, um, it turns out there are these books written in both Germany and the U.S. There are these novels written for and about adolescent girls. And these novels frame this period of adolescence as a time of transition. So partly, um, I, I think what uh, what you're asking about here, Renee, is, is this paradox that um, on the one hand, these books for adolescent girls appear to be very socially conservative. So they they rely on gender binaries. They assume that um, the most important thing about men and women, girls and boys, is that they are opposite from each other. Um, they are these novels are definitely set within a patriarchal patriarchal world, a world um, that assumes whiteness as the norm. Um, so. So there are all kinds of reasons why we might think, yeah, these probably aren't books that are going to be particularly useful to us in a world where we're trying to um, move away from sexist and racist uh, perspectives. But what I found in reading these books is that the that that the the social conservatism is is accompanied by this focus on girlhood and this acceptance of girlhood as a fluid, uh, flexible space. And that 
you know, that there's, there's this ability, you know, I, I feel, find myself quoting Walt Whitman a lot these days, this idea of we can contain multitudes. Um, and it seems to me that these books contain multitudes. They are socially conservative and they are liberatory all at the same time. And, and that's what I wanted to better understand. Um, and, and what I think actually ultimately helps me answer this question of, you know, well, why do we love these books? Um, that are conservative in some ways, but also imagine girlhood as a space of change and exploration where it's okay to make mistakes, where adults have the responsibility to provide mentoring for girls. Um, It feels to me like the world in the world of the 19th century girls books, there's actually a much more um, accepting, there's a gentler perspective uh, towards adolescent girlhood than we may see sometimes today. Absolutely. And perhaps we should set up for our listeners, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, but as as we're sort of looking at the difference between what it is to become a girl and a woman in the United States, and again, this is 19th century versus this in Germany, that this adolescence period really in in German literature, and perhaps if you could answer in Germany itself, did allow for, like you said, like girls making mistakes, they could be obedient and delinquent um, without rejecting the adults. Um, but perhaps say something a little bit, or can you say something more about that, about how it was different for young American girls and young German girls and how this was reflected in the literature? Right, right. So I actually, one of the surprises of this project for me was I had assumed that the American books were going to be focused on girlhood and the German books I'd learned were focused on adolescence. But it turned out that there is this group of 19th century books that are about adolescent girls and that imagine adolescence in a very similar way to this German model. Um, so, so both the German and the American adolescent girls were, um, were, were being, uh, well, maybe a way to think about this is that, that these are novels that focus on this small, short period of time in the girl's life, this period of transition. And in this space of transition, these girls are, um, are really seen, they're, they're, they're certainly not idealized in the way that sometimes the girls of like the orphan girl novel, you know, Anne of Green Gables is really idealized in many ways. The girls in these books um, are messier, they're more awkward. Um, they definitely have things to learn from their community. And there's a sense that their community is able to meet their needs. So um, the, I think the, the difference here that, that became increasingly clear to me is that in the 20th and 21st century, adolescence is really imagined as this time of alienation and angst, um, Stanley Hall called it Sturm und Drang, storm and stress. Um, So adolescence is seen as this particularly difficult time. And in contrast, in in the model of the Bachfisch, which I discovered through the example of these German books, but also shows up in the American books, adolescence is, 
is maybe difficult for the girl as she's working really hard to figure out how to become a woman, but it isn't necessarily difficult for her community, that her community can feel kind of relaxed and loving and capable in a way that I think many 20th and 21st century parents feel a lot of anxiety about whether they can successfully engage with their adolescent daughters. Sure. I think one of the one of the sentences you and, and I'm taking this out of context, but it said, let girls explore rather than fo- force them into maturation. So they were allowed to be normal or typical of their age. Yeah. 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 And that's 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 a great yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'd like to to discuss for a moment um the premise of education for the readers. And I had this as one of our questions because um education helps shape identity. And in in part of your introduction, you have that this the shaping of identity and this premise of education can sometimes lead to lasting happiness. This was uh, one of the the moral lessons. Um, is there something more you would like to say about that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Renee. Um, so, you know, I'll maybe take a little bit of a step back. So, one of the things that I think is is important to understand about the idea of the Bachfisch is that it is coming out of a model in Germany where girls typically left school around fourteen but they weren't seen as being old enough to get married until 18 or 19. So there's this interim period um, where they're finished with formal education and yet um, they, they need to be kept busy in some way, right? There's some, um, there's, there's some risk for their families. They, they need to be, they can't, you know, be left to just hang out on street corners. They've got to have something to do to fill their time. And, and the education that these girls receive in, in this period between 14 and 18 is often not, it can be in a school. Sometimes the girl is sent away to a boarding school, sort of a finishing school. That's one option. But more often she's, she's sent away to an aunt or another adult woman who, um, kind of takes her, takes her in as a, as a project, um, and educates her in the, both the, emotional and domestic labor of, of becoming a woman. Um, so, so it's fascinating to me in these books, there's often this very detailed description of like how to serve tea or how to dust properly. You know, the sense that domestic labor is really central to the work of becoming a woman. But then there's also this instruction in uh, emotional labor, the work of when to display your emotions, when to hide your emotions that, you know, you shouldn't, if you meet a friend on the street, you shouldn't be too exuberant in your greeting of her, that that will make people think that you're, you're not quite proper. Um, it may make men think that you're available for flirtation when you're really not. Um, so there, so there are all of these um, these guidelines, these lessons that these girls are learning from um, from adult women, whether it's a, 
a teacher um, at a boarding school or an aunt. Um, but absolutely, this idea of lasting happiness is key here because often there are examples of women who didn't get a good education in their teenage years. Um, so, for example, in uh, Gretchen's Joys and Sorrows, um, Bachfischen's Leiden und Freuden, which is the kind of paradigmatic Bachfisch, German Bachfisch book, Gretchen's um, cousin comes to stay with them because her mother is really not capable of taking good good care of um, of her, and and there's there's a, a line I probably can't quote it exa- exactly, but something like you know Gretchen learns how lucky she is to be receiving the education of this aunt. Um, because it's a pernicious thing not to be educated properly. And it has consequences, not just for the girl, um, for, for the, you know, the girl herself, but then also if a woman is, hasn't been educated properly, she won't be able to raise her own daughters. Well, um, so, so yeah, so lasting happiness really requires that in this essential period of adolescence, a girl um, learns the right lessons. I, I I find this really intriguing as we we think about the cultural bonds that that this literature brought, and in in chapter three, which is converting girls into women, um, and I you specifically use a, a gender theory as a lens to help see the transformation. Um, would you? Would you say that this is definitely in the Protestant cultural norm or? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great question. And that's something that I, um, I sort of note in this book, but I don't go into a lot of detail that, yes. Yeah, so these are books that are in, in both the U S and Germany. They're books that assume a white Protestant and even northern audience. So in Germany, these books um, tend to be written by Prussian authors and published in Prussia. In the U.S., they tend to be written in New England or maybe the Midwest. Um, and, and you know, that's that's seen as the, the kind of cultural site. And I, I don't and, and then, as you say, in both of these cases, these it, it is a Protestant audience that's assumed. Catholicism, where it comes up, is definitely um, othered. It's it's seen as um, something kind of foreign. There's a, a character in one of these books, Faith Gartney's Girlhood. Um, there's a character named Glory, who's an orphan, who was born to a Catholic family and um, still has a sort of Catholic identity. But when Glory is welcomed into um, uh, the home of a single woman who proceeds to educate her and kind of help her have a Bachfish period, um, she becomes a Protestant. You know, she still has some of her old Catholic, um, I think she has a rosary she inherited from her mother that she treasures, but she she definitely um, aligns herself with with Protestant culture and religion as as the novel progresses. 
Um, so yeah, you're right. This is definitely a part of what's happening here and not something that I necessarily have figured out um, exactly why this is the case, but, but you're right that there's, it's a kind of subculture, even within the cultures of these, you know, large, diverse countries, there, there are lots of different cultural perspectives. And these books are really are focused in this Northern Protestant um, community. Right. Um, something I should have asked earlier, and so I'd like to, to jump in right now. Um, how many, or approximately how many books were translated from German into English and then versus the English going into German? How much of a cultural exchange in that regard with translation happened? Yeah, well, so uh, when I started trying to sort out this project and how it was going to work, I, I had long, long lists of books that I thought, yep, this, you know, this fits the model of the Bachfish book. But then I thought, you know, I really want to be talking about not just these examples of, of books about adolescent girls, but I want to be thinking about this as a kind of cross-cultural exchange. So I ended up selecting books to focus on in my book that were translated. So the, the eight books that I talk about, um, the eight novels I talk about in my book were all translated. Um, sometimes very soon after publication, sometimes much later, but, um, but I did want somehow to get at this sense that these were books that were of interest to both German speaking and English speaking or English reading, German reading, um, a German reading audience. Yes, because we have to assume some, that we understand the the migratory patterns. How many Germans were coming into the north part uh, of the United States and and back? Um, yeah, well, and so and that's a that, and that's I think a, a another piece of this, right? So it seems sort of obvious. Like we know that there was a huge German language speaking population in the U.S. in the 19th century. Um, and that there were schools that where instruction was entirely in German. And, you know, and this is, and I think it's something we've kind of forgotten because um, after World War One, um, there was a real switch and it became um, kind of taboo to, to, to have a German language school. But, but before then, you know, there's this huge German speaking population in the U S the, the interest in Germany is a little different. So, so the interest in English language books in Germany isn't because there's an immigrant population, English speaking immigrant population, but it's because um, American literature was beginning to be seen as, um, as a literature, you know, that, you know, I think we sometimes forget that, for a long time, you didn't study. If you were studying English literature in school in the 19th century, you mostly read British literature. You didn't read American literature because there wasn't a sense that America had a literature worth studying. But that that changes in the 19th century, and it changes not just for Americans. It also changes for Europeans. And so it starts to be a sense that it is important to learn English, that reading books in English is valuable. Um, and so American novels start being published um, both in English and being translated into Germany 
um, especially starting around the 1870s. I think it also speaks to the ways that German or American uh, children's book authors were writing these really dynamic, exciting books that were also really popular in translation in Germany. So Louisa May Alcott's work in particular uh, was being translated and widely read. Um, I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to say about that. Yeah, but so but so just, just to reiterate, this is really uh, an exchange that's happening. Oh, I know. The other thing I wanted to say that I think is relevant here is that there, um, there aren't copyright laws that are protecting the work of authors uh, at this point. And so one reason to take a German book and translate it into English and publish it in the U.S. is that you don't have to pay the author royalties. Um and the same thing in Germany, you can um, just pick up a copy of Louise May Alcott's Little Women, find a translator, maybe pay the translator, but you don't pay Alcott. So it's a way to come up with material um, without having to pay an author royalties. Sure. So we, we've mentioned that the Buckfish uh, time period is really this adolescence between girlhood and adult womanhood. But what is the arc of the age of the readers. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, you know, of course we, we can't know for sure who was reading these books. The other, you know, one of my criteria in choosing novels to write about in my book was that they had been published in both English and German. Um, and that was in part because I was interested in translation issues and I wanted to see how these stories were presented in, in different languages. But the, the, other, the other criteria I had was that I wanted to publish books that, that were bestsellers, um, which is kind of a tricky term in the 19th century. You know, there is no New York Times uh, list of bestselling books to, to refer to, but there, there are some lists of books that, that went through large print runs. Um, there's research that's been done about books that were checked out from libraries, which books were checked out most often from libraries. So I was looking at that material. Um, I would say that, so, so while I can't say who actually was reading these books and my, my guess is it was probably um, girls from, you know, eight or nine or 10 through adult women um, in the same way that I think, you know, girls' books today still get read by by girls and women and, and men of all ages. Um, they're, they're addressed in general to adolescent girls. And that is, that is one of the key elements of these novels is that they are seen as providing a form of mentorship and community for adolescent girls. So in Gretchen's Joys and Sorrows, for example, the narrator starts out by saying, you know, I know that the Bachfish period adolescence can be a difficult time. And I hope that this book will comfort you in, you know, in your experience of adolescence. So that is the explicit audience for these novels. Nice. I know personally going back reading 
material that I read as a as an adolescent when my daughter was in her adolescence. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Little Women, House, Little House on the Prairie. I found myself rolling my eyes all the time, yeah. like, why okay. did I think this was so great? And, right. Right. But I mean, yeah. that is part of the, the aging process. Um, although I still uh, really do enjoy going back and reading uh, books from from many years ago because I get something different as an adult than I did as an adolescent. So mm-hmm. yes, uh, yes. Well, and I think it's also um, it's also fun to be reading, you know, rereading them with a daughter. I'm curious, you know, were th- what were some of your daughter's favorite books? So she went through a period. She loved Greek goddesses, which is something that's published. Uh, there's a series for young girls that um, sort of uh, takes the the feminine perspective of female Greek goddesses and puts them in roles of power rather than it being a male dominated canon of gods. Um, and she loved those. And then, of course, she loved all the Harry Potters. Um, and then she moved into teen angst, like so many other. 13, 14 year old girls do The Fault in Our Stars, that type of series. Yes. Um, and then, of course, at 16, she became an adult. She became of age, I would like to say, and moved on to reading more adult books. And so now she's in college and she'll say, Oh, mom, can I, do you have this book? And I'm like, hold on, let me go through my shelves. Yeah, here, <laughs> you don't have to buy it. So, um, so it has been nice watching her grow up. But the things that I loved, like Nancy Drew, she mm-hmm. had no desire to read. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I've seen a real shift. You know, I teach this class called American girls fiction and I've taught it for probably 20 years now. And I've definitely seen a switch. And Nancy Drew is one example. I would say 20 years ago, most of the students in my class had read Nancy Drew. They were passionate about Nancy Drew. They really wanted to talk about Nancy Drew. And now I actually have taken Nancy Drew off the syllabus because it feels like in the last five or 10 years, somehow Nancy Drew is no longer part of uh, the reading experience of most adolescent girls. So it is interesting how these things shift. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not aware of that series about the the Greek goddesses. That sounds fantastic. I will look up the actual author and series and send it to you. So yeah, you know thanks. what I'm talking about. Yeah. But it, so that sort of leads me actually to a, a bit of off topic. So do you think that your students today, your college students, when they were adolescents, did they read a cross section of male and female writers and male and female experiences? Were they looking for their same gender experience or? Mm-hmm. Well, I think... So a couple of things. One is that um, we, I, I think girls are typically, uh, it's assumed that girls will read anything. So girls get given, and, and I think there's still, there's still an assumption that you, that, that boys will not read books about girls. And so in schools, you need, most books need to be about boys so that the boys will read them, but the girls will read whatever you give them. So that's, you know, they'll, they'll be fine with it. Um, and I think for many of my students, so I teach at a women's college. And I think one of the things that really delights many of my students is that we really can center the experience of women um, and girls. And so many of my classes, 
we'll have a syllabus of books that are all by women, all about female protagonists. Um, certainly not all of my classes, but some of them are focused in that way. The other thing that I think is um, has, has shifted and that is really important for my students today is recognizing the ways that the category of of girlhood or or womanhood is is much more fluid than um, my students even 10 years ago would have, or maybe even five years ago would have said. And so, you know, part of the conversation we have these days is about, you know, what does it, what does it even mean to define yourself as male or female or neither? Um, is, is a book about a trans boy, you know, how does, how does a book like that fit into the, the history and the tradition of the girl's book? Like when we, when we open up the, the story to say, well, sometimes a girl's book ends not with a woman, but with a man, you know, and that's also part of the history of the girl's book, the contemporary history of the girl's book. And I, you know, so, so those are some of the things that we're talking about in my class right now. And um, it's, it's just been a real pleasure for me as somebody who's interested in gender theory, who, you know, I spent a lot of time in the early part of my career talking about, okay, why do we find it so important to have there be this difference between male and female? Like, why do we keep having, you know, different colors for girls and boys and different attributes for girls and boys. Like what happens if we let go of some of that? And so it's been really fun for me to see my students be really engaged in, in the ways that um, gender doesn't always have to be about difference. It can, it can be uh, about uh an individual's own experience. It can be about a a protagonist story that isn't, um, isn't limited to, you know, girls always grow up to be women. What a powerful statement. I I love what, what you said about your students. Um, It makes me wish I could go back to being a young reader again and not have a predestined outcome that I knew that this, that Nancy Drew was going to be a woman sort of uh, thing. So it, oh, exactly. And Nancy Drew is such a great example of that very um, restrained or constrained version of femininity. You know, Nancy Drew is already the perfect young woman at the beginning of the series. She doesn't need to change or or really learn anything. She is already like perfectly groomed. She's perfectly dressed. She knows how to... Um, she knows how to engage socially in ways that both like assert her femininity and her intelligence and ability to solve crimes. Like, but she's, she's able to like be competent and feminine at the same time. She doesn't ever get in trouble in that way. Um, And so there is something, you know, Nancy Drew is the example of, it's kind of the opposite of the Bachfish book because Nancy is, is perfect when the series begun, begins and she remains perfect. Whereas the Bachfish um, is absolutely not perfect when her story begins. Like she has a lot to figure out. And it's really the story is about the figuring out 
And I think the power in that for, for readers, both adolescent readers and adult readers, is it says, you know what, it's okay to sometimes not do things in a way that gets you the approval of people around you. Like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to try on different identities and see if they work for you or not. And, and that, you know, I think in our culture, we sort of label that adolescence and kind of put it in that space in our lives. But the reality is, I think we all have days where we're feeling awkward and uncomfortable and trying to figure out who we actually are and who we want to be. It's not something that's just limited to adolescence. Absolutely. Even, yes, as an adult, as a mother, <laughs> yes, I'm lucky to know where I am some days. Um, that sort of, that, that brings me to um, the the different types of bockfish, the, the tropes, if you will. So you've mentioned that you have the story of the uh, of an orphan. Um, are there some other uh, well-used uh, tropes or character lines that, that you found with the buckfish? Yeah. So the distinction that, um, that I, that I, that I write about and that I, I am finding really useful in my teaching and my research is to, is to think about three different categories of, um, of girls stories. So one of those categories is the Bachfish novel. And that is, um, is the adolescent, the story about the adolescent girl in this time of transition. Another type of girl's book is the orphan girl novel. And there's been some great research done on that genre. Joe Sutliff Sanders um, has a book called Disciplining Girls that is, is really useful for talking about the ways that the orphan girl book develops in the 19th century into the 20th century. And that's a model that rises out of the sentimental novel for adults. And then the third category is the family story. So I think I mentioned before books like, like little women, um, five little peppers and how they grew. That was a series that I loved as a kid. Um, many of Alcott's books are family stories and those are stories, uh, where the, the, there's often more than one protagonist. You have this, you know, in little women, for example, you have this whole family of girls and their mother, and it's really a story about all four of the girls. Um, the thing that the Bachfish book does that I find so fascinating is that in the family story, the girl is secure, but she's also somewhat limited. So being at home provides safety, but it also means that her growth is happening very much in the context of her family of origin. In the orphan girl novel, the orphan girl has to leave home because she doesn't have a home anymore, and she has to create a life for herself somewhere else. Um, so she, there's this sense of adventure, but she's at risk. You know, there's, there's, and, and the novels sometimes downplay the risk a little bit. You know, these, these, these aren't terrifying novels, but there is a kind of trauma that lies not very far underneath the surface that these are girls who are unprotected. And if, you know, if they don't behave themselves, if they don't convince adults to love them, um, they can be in significant danger. So the Bachfish book takes the safety of the family story 
and the adventure of the orphan girl book and puts them together. Um, so, so it, it, it's a, it's a model that has things in common with both of the other types of girls books, but is kind of unique in, in this sense of, you know, a girl who is confident that she is loved. She has a loving family at home. She's not leaving home because there's been some tragedy. She's leaving home because her parents think it's worth investing in her growth and education and sending her off to the city or to a boarding school. Um, but to somebody who will have the time to really devote to her, to her growth. Um, so I, I really, um, you know, I love the family stories and the orphan girl stories too, but I think there's something really powerful in this, in this Bachfish model where a girl gets to both be loved and leave home. She doesn't have to, do one or the other. Again, something very powerful that we could use today. Um, I would like to read uh, from your conclusion. I'm on page 165 if you happen to have a book in front of you, but this is, um, I think, one of the most beautiful paragraphs of any concluding book that I've read, so I wanted to read it to our audience. The Buckfish, the adolescent girl who paved the way for later literary heroines, opens a window into early structures for mentoring and protecting adolescent girls. Buckfish Books, the earliest novels for girls to focus on female adolescents, challenge our cultural assumptions about progress, about adolescence, and about what it was like to be a girl in the 19th century. In particular, by imagining girls as powerful actors and adolescent as created space, adolescents as created space, they complicate a belief that girls' books always evolve towards less sexist and restrictive images of girls. I found this paragraph just like it, first of all, it did a beautiful job in wrapping up your book, but it really spoke to literature today, literature of the 19th century, literature of the 20th century. Um, do you have any other comments you would like to add to that beautiful conclusion? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Renee. I, um, I, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the compliment and it was lovely to hear you read that paragraph. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that this, this speaks to a couple of things that are near and dear to me. So one is the question of, of what the 19th century has to offer us today. And I think that, you know, I'm not the only one who's thinking about this. I've been really fascinated by recent shows like Apple TV's Dickinson um, or the Enola Holmes um, Netflix series, the um, the new film version of Little Women. Like there's a way that culturally, I think we are really intrigued by the 19th century. We're, we're curious about what we might learn from the 19th century. And what I would suggest is that, that part of what we may learn is that even though the 19th century um, is, is linked to all kinds of repression for women, for people of color, for disabled people. There are also um, ideas, there are ways of thinking about community, about thinking about nurturing each other that are still valuable for us today. Um, so that we can look back to the 19th century 
And absolutely, we can critique it. We can think about the kinds of progress that we've made. But it doesn't have to be an either or. We can say, no, we don't want to do everything the way that that it was done in the 19th century. But there's some pieces that we might want to return to, that we might want to hold on to. And one of these pieces is a model for um, honoring adolescence, um, so kind of treasuring it, not just seeing it as something to be endured as this like horrible thing that you just have to do and you hope it's over as soon as possible. So honoring adolescence and also as adults taking on the responsibility for nurturing adolescents um, in ways that allow them to relax a little bit. Uh, so, so, so those are those are some of the things that I took away from from this project, and I'm still enjoying thinking about. Absolutely, adolescence. We do, um, and you mentioned this in the introduction several times. Adolescence, we make it into something that's full of angst when it doesn't have to be. There is a, a better way, so to speak. So. Yes. So um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but what are some of your next projects? What else do you have in the pipeline, so to speak? Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm I'm working on an article uh, um, with uh, a, a close colleague, Professor Darla Shum, who's professor of religious studies at Hollins University. We're finishing up an article right now about silence in girls' books, and in particular, the idea that when girls become quiet, and we're looking at um, two 19th century novels, um, Heidi and What Katie Did, and an early 20th century novel, Anne of Green Gables, that some critics have argued that when book in books like these, when girls become quiet, it's a mark of constraint that that their kind of violence is being enacted on them that is denying them their voice. And we're looking at disability studies um, and religious studies to think about the ways that silence in these books is also a form of empowerment that that these girls may choose to not speak as much but because as readers we have access to their internal experience, we can see that they're they're actually taking on a kind of power. So Anne of Green Gables has this great line where she she says to Marilla, you know, I, I used to want to use big words and, and I talked all the time, but now I've realized that I'd rather keep some of my thoughts, I'd rather keep them, um, kind of treasure them inside and not share them. And part of what we think is going on there is that when the girl shares what she thinks, she makes her speech subject to discipline. Other people can tell her she's right or wrong and um, you know what she should say or shouldn't say. When she takes on this sense of treasuring her thoughts um, internally, she's also taking on a kind of authority to judge for herself um, what she wants to think, what, you know, what ideas she has. And so it seems to us that there's a kind of power in that. So that's one project I'm working on. Another project that I'm, um, is, is in really beginning stages, but I'm, I'm very interested in. One of the things that became clear to me in working on this book, Transforming Girls, was the ways that, um, 
that whiteness is is seen is you know it's this kind of hidden marker of virtue in these novels there's there's a lot of discussion of soap and water especially in the german bachfish books it's really you know these girls learn how to scrub their fingernails and wash their faces properly and so there's this sense that being clean is really important and so on the surface this is just about being clean but it seems to me it's also about um marking um the the ways these girls are seen as good girls is in part that they are different from girls of color and i'm curious then to think about so how do the stories of girls of color in the 19th century how do they fit if 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 they are being i think sort of deliberately excluded from these bachfish narr- narratives um how where where do the stories of girls of color fit into the history of the girls book and so the thing that i'm wondering about is um and and i'm about to teach a class on this next week so i may have figured out more then but i'm looking at harriet jacobs um incidents in the life of a slave girl and um burnett's a little princess and thinking about the ways that the garret functions in both of these stories. And so, you know, Linda Brent in, um, instance, life of a slave girl spends several years in a, in a garret space so that she can be near her children, but, um, you know, protected from the man who, um, owns her. Um, and Sarah Crew in A Little Princess spends a shorter period of time in an attic. And I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out the ways that um, A Little Princess might be borrowing from that fugitive narrative that Jacobs writes and thinking about the attic as, as a space that you know, marks you as other, but might also be protective. So that's, that's a, that's a new, a new project. Um, but one that I've been, uh, yeah, having fun thinking about. Well, they both sound fascinating and I would love to have you back, um, when you get the material done. Um, I mean, both, I, I could speak volumes about quiet versus silence and the power of white over looking at white being good, not white, not good. So, but we will save those conversations for our next, our next meeting. So Professor Pfeiffer, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with me. And um, I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you, Renee. This was a real pleasure. I appreciate the chance to speak with you.